I was kind of shocked that I had not as much to say about this one because there was a day and age where I would have been more excited to talk about this one than any of them. So uh, just a funny thing about, I think, American culture. Uh, when I was younger, so probably like early, early 2000s, uh, American evangelicalism sort of went through this movement that later on has been dubbed the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. And basically what it was, was like throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and in the 90s, being reformed, or the smaller version of that, being a Calvinist, was really like a, a bad thing. Like my dad will tell you, after he, after he graduated seminary, it was very hard for him to get a job without just kind of hiding the fact that he was a Calvinist. And, and very few, unless you grew up like specifically in the OPC or the PCA, you were not a Calvinist and Calvinism was bad and everyone saw it as this really evil thing. And then I don't know what happened, but something happened in the early 2000s where these like really popular teachers got really popular. Guys like Mark Driscoll and R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller and John MacArthur and these other guys. And they were all Calvinists. And so we had all of these Calvinistic teachers and it sort of sprung this movement. And they called it the Young, Restless and Reformed movement because you had a bunch of young guys that were just like, they were so tired of the theology that they had been given and they were ready to, they were becoming Calvinists. And one of the main things, like the main talking points that started the Young Restless Reform Movement was to talk about the wrath of God. And, uh, and the reason was because before that, the, the kind of presentation of evangelicalism was just a very watered down version of God. It was a very fluffy and lovey-dovey and God is just loving and he loves you and he's so great and you're so great and we just all love God and it's big kumbaya. And then what would happen is people would leave the faith because they, they, were, they, were, they fell in love with this soft, lovey-dovey God. And then they start reading through their Bible and see he's kind of mean sometimes. He's kind of angry sometimes. As a matter of fact, he's kind of violent sometimes. And this isn't the God that I fell in love with. I fell in love with the kumbaya, the hippie God. You know, the hippie Jesus that smokes pot and has long, beautiful hair, and we all sit in a circle and hold hands. And then here I have God killing babies and God making jokes about raping women. And that's in the Bible. And what do we do with all that? And so this, this issue is like the wrath of God, God's anger, God's wrath, is, is sort of what started, in many ways, the Calvinistic movement. It was because people started to get their eyes open to, there's so much about God in the Bible that's been hidden from me. There's so many doctrines that have been hidden from me. And people started to realize, like, yeah, God is lovey-dovey. He is, but he's also wrathful. And so this was a hot-button issue in, like, the early 2000s, to talk about the wrath of God. We don't want to just talk about the lovey-dovey side of God. We want to talk about the wrath of God. And so that's what we're doing today. God's wrath, which is essentially just synonymous with his anger. That God is a God who has wrath or anger. And uh, John, John Gill calls his wrath the height of his anger. Um, sometimes it's better to think of wrath as the manifestation of anger. So God gets angry and then whatever he does with that anger is wrath. And so that's why we talk about to experience the wrath of God is when God judges you because he's mad. So sometimes you can think of wrath as anger or sometimes you can think of wrath as the manifestation of anger. So when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed with fire and brimstone, they were experiencing the wrath of God 
because they had made God angry. So you, you can separate them a little bit, or you can think of them as the exact same thing. But either way, there's a close relationship between wrath and anger. Now, keep in mind, uh, in men, anger is what we call a passion, or the more common term is an emotion. We want to be careful. We talked about, if you remember, the, uh, the um, impassibility of God. God does not have emotions the way we have emotions. So God doesn't get angry in the same way that we get angry. But our anger that we feel is the closest analogy we, we get to whatever God's wrath is. And so John Gill dis- defines it as displacency or displacency with sin and with sinners on account of it. And that's just a, f- a fancy word for being angry and against. So God is angry with sin and with sinners on account of it. Uh, so God's wrath is, again, it's just his displeasure towards sin. And that's why I like this verse, but the thing that David did, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So this is kind of what Gil is saying is God's wrath or his anger. Sin and sinners alike displease God, makes God angry. And so I want us just to see, just before we talk too much about it, I just want us to see that scripture does present God as a wrathful God or as an angry God. And we obviously are not going to look at every Bible verse that says, says it. There's actually quite a bit. We're just going to look at a small sample. So this is from Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Um, this is the ESV. A lot of people have this memorized. And I've noticed usually when a person has a Bible verse memorized, it's memorized in the King James almost every time. But this is like the only verse that I hear people quoted a lot, but they usually quote it in the NIV. So I don't know why, but the NIV actually says that God is a righteous God, a God who is angry with the wicked every day. So that's another way you could translate angry with the wicked all the time or angry with the wicked every day or feels indignation. Indignation is just another word for anger, which is why sometimes you'll hear people describe God's wrath as righteous indignation. It's anger, but it's good anger. It's righteous indignation, right? And, and, and here, here it again, uh, the Psalm 711, <coughs> excuse me, is not even saying like God's wrath is kind of this rare occasion. It's just like this really small thing about him that every now and then flares up, but you don't have to worry about it too much. This is a constant disposition of God. He is angry every day. Every single day, he is angry at the sin and the suffering of the world. Uh, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is constantly in, in a state of wrath against unrighteousness and ungodliness. His wrath is always abiding upon the ungodliness of our day. Ephesians 2.3, we talked about this on, in, on Sunday in a sermon not long ago. And we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all born in a sinful disposition, which means we are worthy of God's wrath, right? So he is an angry God every day. He has wrath revealed from heaven. We are all children of God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. Um, Numbers 11.1, 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So here we have God's anger. And what I like about this, I made this note, it's very common in scripture 
for Scripture to speak of God's anger metaphorically as fire. Right? So here we have, right, you kindle, you start a fire, and by sinning, by complaining, they started this fire of anger within God. His anger burned, and it caused him to consume them like fire does. So the fire of God's anger consumed. It killed them. He judged them, and they had kindled his anger. Right? So again, this is a small sample, but you get the picture. The Bible is not trying, the Bible does not present the wrath of God or the anger of God as some side note, something that, yeah, sometimes that happens, but really he's just about love. But he is angry every day. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. We are all deserving of wrath. He is an angry, wrathful God. The problem is, is, what we learn in learning all of God's attributes is because he's infinite, he can be all these things at one time. So we don't want to think of a mood swingy God where some days he's mad, some days he's happy, some days he's in love, some days he's not in love. Uh, but he is constantly in a state of love and constantly in a state of wrath. He's, he's all of these things all of the time. So when you read this, you know, you don't need to think of like a grumpy God up in heaven. God's not a grumpy mood, but his disposition against sin is always one of anger and wrath and displeasure. He is a God of wrath. And so this is why the Bible is so comfortable speaking of God's hatred. Because he is a wrathful, angry God, this makes him hate things. And by things, we sometimes mean people. John Gill says the scriptures do in many places attribute to God hatred of both persons and things. This was another, I talked about that early movement in the early 2000s. This was another eye-opening thing for so many people. We were brought up and raised, and everyone's taught this famous cliche, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, that might be the case for us because we're fellow sinners, but people would say that of God. They would say, God, we, we do that because God is like that. God loves the sinner, but he, he hates the sin, and then people started to have their eyes open. My evangelical life has not been true because it doesn't take that long to read through your Bibles and see God hates the sinner. He doesn't just hate the sin. He hates them. He hates the people. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all, not evil, evildoers. He hates them. His wrath abides upon them, right? Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So here's where a thing, right? Gil says God's uh, hatred is both of persons and things. So here's a thing. God hates sin. He hates certain actions, but he also hates people. He hates the sinner and he hates the sin. Or a better way to say it, he hates the sinner on account of his hatred of the sin. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite Bible verses that I see people use against abortion is in the Psalms. It tells us that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, right? He doesn't hate the shedding of innocent blood. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates the murderers. He hates the people. He hates them. And so we see that, again, as Gil said, it's, 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 it's way too simplistic. There's a kernel of truth to it, but it's way too simplistic to say with God that he hates the sin and loves the sinner. That's just not technically biblical. And R.C. Sproul used to always make a joke where he said, um, a lot of people who think God, something along the lines of, a lot of people who think that God hates the sin but loves the sinner are going to be unpleasantly surprised on judgment day when they realize that God doesn't throw sin into hell. He throws sinners into hell. Right? He does, if, if he hated sin and loved the sinner, then he would just throw sin into hell and throw the sinner into heaven. But he doesn't do that because he hates the sinner. If, if I can Please do. What is the definition exactly of 
Well, that's kind of what we're getting at. It's, there's, there's probably no super, super agreed upon consensus, but it is essentially hatred or anger. A, a, a hateful anger. A, 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 an intense displeasure. Right, and that's exactly, so that's what I was saying where, um, that, that's, that's a good call. So that's why I was saying that the, the two primary ways to think of wrath, whoops, sorry, it's glitching out on me. This, that's what I meant here. So sometimes the Bible will use wrath and it's just synonymous with anger. But what you're saying is that, yes, sometimes, this is what I meant when I said that wrath is the manifestation of anger. Sometimes the Bible distinguishes him towards God's anger. So he, he quote-unquote feels angry and then he does something about it and what he does is the wrath. Right. So, so, so I, theologians would argue the Bible is comfortable using both of those definitions. So sometimes wrath is anger or sometimes wrath is the action that came from anger. Yeah. Both, both of those work in different contexts. But if you stop and think about it, you have to really you know, go deep to say, you know, get an understanding what it really means. Yeah. Uh, and just watching this, I would say that's the way I was. Uh, I have to really think about it. What does it mean? Right. No, yeah. No, that, I'm glad you brought that. That's a great qualification. So, for example, like to use some of these scriptures. So, like here, like here are somewhere, I think... Um, Here's one, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. This one could probably go either way. I, I would say it's probably synonymous with anger here because there are people whose God's wrath abides upon them, but they're not necessarily in a state of judgment all the time. Like sometimes God blesses sinners. All right, so what happens? Like does, does Bill Gates feel the wrath of God on him right now? Right, but I, I would suggest he probably doesn't, right? He's buying up half of the United States. He's getting pretty close to ruling the world. He's the richest man on, on the planet. He's probably pretty happy. He's probably pretty comfortable, pretty content with his life. But God's wrath abides upon him. So how is that possible for him to be under experiencing God's wrath, but so happy? Because I think in that situation, God's wrath is not being talked about as a judgment, but a, a displeasure. God, God hates Bill Gates all the time. And that's why Bill Gates is always under the wrath of God. But you're right. Sometimes the wrath of God is the judgment itself. So Sodom and Gomorrah, when the fire and the brimstone, they could have gone outside and said, woe is us for being under the wrath of God. In that situation, the wrath is an action, not a feeling, right? But it, I think it can be one or the other. Like here, here the anger was the anger and then the consummation, this is probably the wrath. So this is what you're talking about. Sometimes anger leads to the action of wrath, but sometimes the wrath is the anger. I, th I think it can be one or the other, if that, if that makes sense. Kind of God's reaction to sin. Yes, yes, that's it. Uh -huh. and, and I would argue that I, don't, yes. I doubt that Bill Gates is happy. <laughs> no, that's probably true. He's but my point is... That, he's content, he's comfortable, and he doesn't know perhaps, that he's not happy. And that's true, yeah. But he's probably sipping some fine scotch. Yeah. No, no, I was actually kind of thinking that. I mean, he did just get divorced not long ago, so, but, but, yeah, but, but the point is, is not everyone is actively under the wrath of God the way, like, 
you know, the, some of the big demonstrations of God's wrath in Scripture, where He's flooding the earth and wiping people out, and you know, a lot of a lot of sinners just live pretty normal, comfortable, happy lives. But we would still say the wrath of God abides upon them, even though it's not like fire and brimstone raining from heaven, kind of a thing. And it will catch up with them. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's why in, in in history, at the end of history. The anger in actions will be one forever, <laughs> but now they can be separated. Yeah. Good question. Um, so again, I kind of already mentioned this, but a lot of times it's really easy to think, well, man, I read all this and it's like, is God loving then? If he, he hates people and he's angry every day and is, I guess God's not a God of love. And we need to see that uh, hatred and love are actually not... Uh, it's not a zero-sum game, right? It's not like if you hate, then you can't love. If you've got hatred, you've got no room for love. If you've got love, you've got no room for hatred. But quite the contrary. They actually are a beautiful dance tango partner. The more you love, the more you hate. The more you love something, the more you hate its opposite, right? So the, the stronger my love is for my son, the more I hate those who wish harm upon my son. Right? If someone comes in and takes, uh, steals uh, a paper plate from my house, I'm not that angry. You could have just asked for it. You can have the paper plate. But if someone comes in and steals my son from my house, I'm, I'm going to be burning with rage. Why? Because I love my son more than a paper plate. So, so you see there's actually quite a relationship between love and hate. It, it reminds me of, um, I think it was a Churchill quote or was it? C.S. Lewis, I can't remember, but some famous person had a quote about military peoples, and it's something along the lines of like, military people don't kill the people in front of them because they hate the people in front of them. They kill the people in front of them because they love the people behind them. Right? So they're, you know, so the bad guys feel the wrath of the military, but that wrath is not coming so much from a hatred of them as is love for its counterpart. Uh, God loves righteousness so much, he has to hate unrighteousness. God loves people so much that when I sin against people, God hates me for it. God, it's, it's, it's his love that produces his hatred. If he loved nothing, he wouldn't hate it when you, defy, when you defied it. But because he loves people, he hates people who choose not to love people, right? So the strength of your love will create the strength of your hatred. So these, these really go together. They're not like opposites that push each other out. I was just thinking of a football game where you, you cheer for one and you uncheer for the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that, 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 yeah, that's, a great, that's a great analogy. You're, you're not so much actively hating the other team as you are loving your team and they're in the way. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing is, God is love, so he, he couldn't send somebody to hell. Well, you know, it's, God does love the whole world. You know, it's not that he hates anybody. He, he loves his creation. He created everything good and he loves it. It doesn't mean they don't deserve punishment. Yeah, that's right. And it, uh, it really hit me. I was watching a, some time ago. There's a court trial. Some guy committed a horrible murder, killing some girl. And that guy's mother was there, and she felt horrible. And she knew her son had to go to jail and maybe even be executed because he killed somebody. But she still loved him. That's right. Yep. 
That's exactly that. That's my favorite analogy. I was actually going to say that until I listened to probably it was probably a different scenario, but it it was one of the recent mass shooters. I don't remember who it was, uh, Dylan Roof or who, someone, but some recent mass shooter and some person in the media. It's kind of a messed up question, but it you know they're trying to get clicks, they're trying to get views, and they specifically asked. They didn't just ask, "Do you think your kid deserves punishment?" They specifically asked, "Do you love your kid?" Like, do you still love them? And it kind of caught them off guard because now they're in a lose-lose situation. Like, what are they going to say? They say, yeah, I do love him, and now the country thinks that they support him. Or they say, I don't love him, and now... And they gave a good answer, and they basically said exactly what you said. They, they said, I guess it's possible to kind of love and hate at the same time. And they said, like, there's a sense in which I hate him. I mean, he, he, he murdered children. I, I hate him. But he's my son. I'll, I'll never not love him. And they really struggled. Like, I kind of feel both. I, I kind of feel both hatred and love for my son. And, and then now, how much more so with God when we, like we said, you know, God's love and hate are not emotions like they are for us. So, God's love and hate are already a little bit more mysterious. So, if, if, if we, within our emotions, are capable of, like, simultaneous love and hate in different senses, then how much more is God capable of simultaneous love and hate, especially since he doesn't have emotions like we do. So I'm comfortable saying, I I don't think there's any contradiction whatsoever in saying God loves all sinners and he hates them. He he loves them and he hates them, just like we can love and hate people simultaneously. Like a less, we we don't even have to do such an extreme, like even just anytime our children disobey with us, we love them, but nonetheless, we still pour out wrath upon them. Like, we, we still get angry with them, and we spank them. And, and that wrath is a form of hatred. By definition, wrath is a form of hatred. We hate what they've done. We're angry with them with what they've done. That's a kind of hatred. So anytime our children do something wrong, we have a kind of, I love you, but I hate you response to them. We don't use that word because we use the word hate so much. But the, the Bible doesn't make so big of a distinction between anger and hatred. The Bible would essentially say, if you are angry with someone, you hate them. That's why Jesus will make that parallel. He tells us to uh, not be angry with our brothers, for you cannot hate your brother and still see the kingdom of God. Jesus will make that kind of a connection. So um, there's, there's a connection, that's, and we try to make that with this slide in general. Whoops. Uh, with this slide, that's, there's, there's really a, 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 an unbreakable connection between wrath and hate. And so, uh, so yeah, people are capable of hatred and love. And so God is certainly infinitely more capable and more mysteriously capable of loving and hating the sinner. So we would affirm God loves every creature he's ever made. He has a deep, infinite love for all people. But he also hates the sinners. He hates, he hates evildoers. And they fit together. Uh, and uh, what made me want to do wrath this week is because we did justice two weeks ago. And wrath is so connected to justice, right? When, when God pours out justice of, of sin, that's where the wrath comes in. Uh, now, obviously, if you are rewarded, that's part of justice. So wrath isn't synonymous with justice. But there's a connection there. So I wanted us to see this connection because uh, there's also a connection to holiness, right? It's easy to get holiness and wrath sometimes confused because like earlier, Bill basically described God's wrath as, I can't remember the exact words, but it's something about like how he's against sin. But that was basically exactly how we define holiness. 
God's holiness means he is pure. He is, he is essentially against sin. He can't be for it. He can't approve of it. It's, it's against his nature. And so we see a connection between his holiness. If God is going to be holy, he has to be just. An unjust God could never be a holy God. So God's holiness makes him just. But in order for him to be just, he's going to have to have wrath. Right? If, if he doesn't punish evil, then he's not just. If he's not just, then he's not holy. So we see this really important connection between holiness, justice, wrath, wrath, justice, holiness. There's a, a lot of similarities between them, but they are distinct. Um, but it, and, and the reason I say this is because a lot of Christians who shy away from the wrath of God or don't want to talk about the wrath of God or they want to reinterpret the Bible and, and, and remove hatred from God altogether, they don't realize the consequences of that. If you take away God's wrath, if you take away his hatred, then you're eventually going to have to take away his justice. And then once you take away his justice, you're eventually going to have to take away his holiness. And now you don't have God, right? You take away his wrath, you take away God. Um, so it's really important. So that's why I wanted us to show that. That's a great point. And, 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 and on the other side of things, uh, here's a, love is not niceness. Wrath is not meanness, and love is not niceness. Yeah, you're right. In our simplistic cultural expressions, anytime someone is nice, we think they're being loving. But niceness can be evil. Niceness can be evil, and meanness can be loving. <laughs> so you're exactly right. And that's why I meant, like, when we read a verse like this, um, where'd it go? God is righteous, who, who, a God who feels indignation every day, that's why I said don't think of God like a grumpy God. He's not a mean, grumpy old man in heaven. Oh, I'm just a bitter, grumpy old man. I'm mad every day. Because, because again, wrath is not the same thing as meanness or grumpiness, right? He's not a mean, grumpy God. <laughs> but he, is a, he, is, he has righteous indignation because he has a righteous justice and because he is holy. So we see a connection. So yeah, that's a really good point. So that's, I have a, five applications that are interesting, but that's basically all I have to say on, on, on the wrath of God before we apply it. So do you just have any comments about God's wrath or hatred, anger? Yeah, I, I think when you go through this stuff, it, at least for me, it makes me stop and think about words and meaning of words. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just glance over things without stopping to think, what does that really mean? Yeah, that's exactly right, yep. And going through this that way makes you stop and think. Yep, exactly, yeah. It can help you read the Bible in a new light because you're, you're really thinking about what does this word in front of me mean? Yeah, and it's so easy just to... One of the biggest fallacies of Christianity is people just think God is love so you couldn't have anything that's evil or wrathful or, or severe justice because God is love. Well, those, those statements aren't compatible with the Bible. Exactly. Yep, that's right. It's, it, and at that point, it, it's now, like to your first point, now it's become a battle of definitions. Yeah, we agree God is love, but what does that mean? And just like the example I gave, I would argue that love requires hate, right? Just like we said, if you love something, you hate its opposite. If I love my son, I hate harm done to my son. And so I would say that it's impossible to be a God of love and not be wrath. I, I don't think those two things... Are, are, I think to separate them is incompatible. A love without hatred is, I don't know, I don't know what love that, that is. It seems to me that discipline is the, I mean, if you love your son, you will discipline him 
because you want him to choose the right path. You want him right. to make good decisions. You want him to make that. So <clears throat> the wrath, the anger that one feels at someone, I mean, at a sinner for sinning, that, that has to be punished. Yes. For the sinner and for everybody else. Yeah, that's a good point. That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what's happening in our society when we don't punish evildoers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but the way they defined love is niceness. And so really what they're saying is my God is just nice to everyone all the time. And and, and to Bill's point, it's possible to be nice to someone and then be unloving not just to them but to other people. Maybe a good example of that is, I don't know if you guys heard of that NASCAR star who was stabbed to death at a gas station. Uh, there was a, a man who was supposed to be in prison, but they chose to be nice, and they put him on parole instead. And then he went to a gas station, he stabbed another man to death. So we weren't being very nice to the gas station guy when we, let that, when we were nice to the man and let him out of prison. You know, so, so niceness, again, is not love. Sometimes niceness is love, but it's not, always, it's not always love. But you're right. So they say, I don't want any part of this God. I just want my loving God. And what they mean by that is, I want the God who's never going to spank me. <laughs> I want the God who's never going to be upset with me. That's the God that I want. And we just have to simply say, you, you can have that God if you want, but it's not the God of the Bible. That's not God. That's right. It's, That's it's, it's not the Jesus who made a whip of cords and whipped people out of the temple. Yeah. Uh, ask the Pharisees if they think Jesus was a nice guy. They would say sometimes, but not when he was whipping us out of the temple. That wasn't very nice, right? <laughs> ask Peter, is Jesus a nice guy? Well, yeah, most of the time, but not when he called me Satan, right? Ask, yeah, oh yeah, Jesus was a nice guy, except for when he went on that rant and he called us broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs. And Jesus was not always nice, but he was always perfect in love, right? There's a reason the Bible says beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yep, amen. Yep. So let's talk just a little bit about application. So God is wrathful. What does that mean for my life? First application, one of the obvious ones, flee from sin. Right? When it helps us to not sin, when we remember that whatever it is I'm about to do, God hates it. And people who do that, what I'm about to do outside of Christ, God sends them to hell for it. God hates sin. He hates sinners. So that should be motivation for us not to sin. We get, there's a few passages I like on this um, from Hebrews chapter 10, or forgive me, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice Jesus is very comfortable using the fear of God's wrath as a motivation to be holy. Right? You should want to be holy. Why? Because you don't want God to destroy you in hell. Right? It, it sounds fire and brimstone. It sounds street preachery. It doesn't sound good to our modern sensibilities, but there's no getting around. That's what Jesus is doing. Why should you be holy? Because you don't want God to destroy you in hell. Right? He's, this is a threat. 
This is a threat. It's a divine, righteous threat. You can be afraid of people and disobey God, but you'll regret that one day. And why will you regret it? Because what Hebrews 10 says, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? Does the author of Hebrews sound like he believes in the nice God? Right? Or this the threatening God? It's, it is terrifying to fall into his hands of judgment. So don't do it. <laughs> don't chase after sin. So the wrath of God, first application, flee from sin, flee from the wrath of God. Um, another one is to believe the gospel, right? If, if you don't want to experience God's wrath, you need Christ. Christ is how we uh, are forgiven of that. And we've talked about this a lot, but we'll read it again. Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that I might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've talked about, again, who remembers what is the word propitiation? mean as a noun? What does it mean to be propitiation? Basically close, but there's something a little more specific. It's appeasement. In other words, to propitiate is to appease wrath. It's to stop somebody's anger. I was mad at you, but then you did propitiated, and now I'm no longer mad at you. So essentially, God's wrath is a key part of the gospel. The gospel is that God's wrath abides upon sinners, and on judgment day, he's going to pour out his wrath upon sinners. But Christ, if you believe in Christ, by faith in Christ, Christ steps in the middle, and then he turns God's wrath away from you. He turns God's anger and hatred away from you. So wrath is a key part of the gospel. The, whole, God, the gospel is being saved from the wrath of God. So if you're afraid of the wrath of God, have no more fear. Just come to Christ, and he will shelter you. He will put an end to the anger that God has for you. And this is why we say in Christ, God has no anger. To, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. You experience nothing but the love of God. You do experience the discipline of God, but we, we've talked in a different class about how discipline and condemnation are different. God disciplines you, but that's just to correct your behavior. You, you in Christ never experience a drop, not an ounce of the hatred of God. All you experience is love because that's, Christ is constantly, he intercedes on your behalf, so he is constantly deflecting the wrath of God away from you. So there's no condemnation, there's no hatred for those in Christ. You are, you just get the love of God. That's all you get in Christ. Um, oh, I, I, speaking of, I remember what this is for. I, I also want us to see how, how connected God's wrath is to the gospel. Uh, we see it here. Is the, Jesus saves us by being a propitiation. Um, but we also see it in that Jesus very subtly describes his crucifixion as being the recipient of God's wrath on our behalf. So Jesus, in some way, shape, or we have to be careful. We don't want to create a Trinitarian heresy and say that the Father hated the Son or something like that. That's silliness. But in a very real sense, Jesus received the wrath of God on our behalf. And where we get that from 
is uh, Jesus' Jesus's metaphor of drinking the cup. And this was a common Old Testament, the cup, drinking the cup of God's wrath was a common Old Testament metaphor. This is just one example, but it's all over the place. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 25, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So God in the Old Testament loved to use this analogy of I've got a cup of wrath and I'm going to make you drink it. And it's just a metaphor for I'm going to pour my wrath out upon you. And so that, that, that analogy of the cup of God's wrath or the cup of wine of God's wrath, drinking the wrath of God, is used all throughout the New Testament. And then we have Jesus in the, or in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says stuff like this. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We know this is a metaphor, right? Jesus didn't drink any cup on Calvary. He drank something, but it was from a sponge, right? There were no cups involved in Calvary. So we know that this is a metaphor. And in its Old Testament context, he's describing the cross as a cup. When he was crucified, he drank a cup and I, the best way to understand it is the cup of God's wrath. He even tells his disciples at one point when he says, I am about to go to a place you cannot follow me. And they say, no, Lord, we'll follow you everywhere. And he says, you foolish people, you don't know what you speak of. And he says, can you drink the cup that my father has handed to me? Right, so Jesus liked to use the same metaphor. So the crucifixion itself was Jesus drinking the wrath of God. So again, if you take the wrath away from God, you've not just destroyed the holiness and justice of God, you've really destroyed the gospel. Like, there's no such thing as a gospel without the wrath of God. We have no need for saving once there's no wrath, right? So the wrath of God is really a crucial element of the gospel, and it's our primary motivation to believe the gospel. Maybe not primary, but it's one of our motivations. Uh, and the third one related to this is to preach the gospel, right? God is wrathful, therefore tell your neighbors about Jesus. If we are saved by the, by the blood of Christ, if we're saved from the wrath of God, and there are people in our life that are currently under the wrath of God, we want them to be saved, right? We don't want them to experience the wrath that we've been rescued from, so how do we get them to believe? Well, we, we have to preach. Romans 10, how will they ever believe if they never hear? And how will they hear if there's no one to preach, Right? So God is wrathful. That means we need to have a heart for the lost, have a heart for people who are under God's wrath, and we should preach the gospel to them so that Jesus will propitiate on their behalf by faith. Uh, an interesting one, sanctify your anger. God is a God of wrath and anger, and we want to be like God. So what does that mean for your life? You should be angry. Anger can be good. A lot of times people think that Christ, Christianity it is a virtue to never be mad. But that's not what the Bible says. Even the, the very definitions of patience, it does not describe God as never having anger, but as being slow to anger. But he will get there. He just gets there slowly, patiently, and justifiably. When anger is wrong is when you get there quickly and unjustifiably. That's, that's called a temper, and it's wrong, it's bad. But there are things in a fallen world that should make you angry. And if you don't feel anger over these things, you should question your sanctification, maybe even your salvation. Anger is good, but it can be abused, it's dangerous. Anger is like fire. 
Fire is such a blessing, but you, it's at the same time extremely dangerous. It's very easy for fire to save your life and, and to protect you, but one misstep and fire will destroy you and destroy everything around you. That's like anger. So that's why the Bible says things like this. Be angry and do not sin. So again, we know that anger is not in and of itself a sin. You can be angry and not be sinning, right? So anger is good as long as you don't sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What Paul says here in Ephesians 4, he's basically saying, yeah, be angry, but don't sin. And here's one of the easiest ways to avoid sin in anger is to get rid of your anger as quickly as possible. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So if something makes you mad today, that's okay, but don't go to bed angry. You need to get over it. Don't let the sun fall down on your day if you haven't put your anger away. And why should you do that? Because if you let your anger fester, you give opportunity to the devil. Uh, this is not a, a, a literal translation. A literal translation will say, give no foothold to the devil. And I, I love the literal because it's, it's such a great metaphor. The, the metaphor is like if you do rock climbing, if you could never rock climb this wall because it's totally flat. There's, there's no crevice. There's no foothold. The best rock climber in the world could not get up this wall. It's too flat. That's why the, the more footholds, the more breaks and crevices there are, the easier it is to rock climb. And Paul uses anger as a metaphor. There's nothing wrong with anger, but it, it's like it, the, the wall of your soul, anger puts these crevices in it, and that makes it really easy for Satan to climb on in. So the longer you stay angry, the longer Satan is able to get into your life and use your anger, right? So uh, an application of God's wrath is we want to be righteously angry like God is, which means that we can be angry and we should be angry over the right things, but we need, unlike God, we can abuse our anger. God can't. So we need to be careful with our anger. So be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? So sanctify your anger. Don't throw tempers. Be slow to anger. Don't get angry over silly things. But do get angry over things that you should be angry about. You should be getting angry as a Christian. How do you define that, though? Because there's some things in this world that we need to continually be angry about. Yeah, that's a good point. I think Paul, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul's... And, you, and you'll, we'll see that because we're getting close to this text in our sermon. Paul is talking mostly about relationships. So that's a good point. This is, this is probably more, this isn't about like the, the, the cosmic abstract stuff. Like, yeah, we should be angry about abortion all the time to some degree. Um, so you're right. This is more about it, when someone in your life does something against you, you can be mad at them, but you shouldn't go to bed mad at them. So you're right. This is, this is more about our interpersonal relationships and not so much about like abstract evil. But nonetheless, uh, even our anger towards abstract evil can still... I, I would still say this, though. Um, Jesus, I mean, so Jesus lived on earth, and so Jesus knew all the injustices that were happening on earth every single day. Yet that didn't stop Jesus from being productive, from living his life, from having joy, right? So it's still possible, even with, like, cosmic... Like, it's possible to... Uh, I'm going to be grumpy and angry every day until abortion is ended. 
I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to go to church. I, I'm just going to protest and protest and be angry and yell until... That would not be sanctified anger because abortion existed in Jesus' day and he didn't just stand outside of sacrifice clinics. He, he still like ate with people and lived his life and had fun. So even with the bigger stuff, there is a sense where we are always angry against it, but not in like an emotional case where I literally always feel anger. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly, yeah. Well, if the Lord has predestined everything, it's still, we can be mad at it, but it's still His plan. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And that's where the comfort comes to, in. And we have to accept, I have to accept, there's some stuff I just don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand it. I have to accept it, that that's... Yeah. Yeah. That that that's a good point. Believing in the sovereignty of God helps us let the sun go, not let the sun go down on our anger. Yeah. It's it. That's a tool for. I need to just accept this. Not not accept it in terms of justify it. It's okay, but I can't let this control me. Like God's in control. This is His plan. God knows it's happening. He's gonna. He is going to deliver His anger at His appropriate time. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that's actually a good segue to our last one, which is have hope. Um, I maybe could have phrased this better, but we, we talked about this when we talked about God's justice, but it's related to wrath. Uh, it sh really should be a, a sign of, it really should fill us with a lot of hope and encouragement to know that on judgment day, everything wicked is going to receive its due course. It's going to receive a, a proper response. And nothing is lost, nothing falls through the cracks, nothing is underpaid or overpaid. But on Judgment Day, everything is going to be perfectly paid for. And this is why, so we're going to kind of conclude with some scripture and to be done. This is why, believe it or not, God's wrath is not just something that we should like reluctantly embrace. Like, oh man, people are really not going to like this, but it's in the Bible, so I guess I'll believe in it. Right? We don't want to have a reluctant... In Scripture, the wrath of God, because of this element, because we know God's wrath is only poured out on sin appropriately. He never pours out wrath inappropriately. Now his wrath can actually be something we delight in. Like this should, this should be really good news. We should have just as much butterflies in our stomach when we hear that God is wrathful against sin than when, when we hear God loves you. Like those, those are both good pieces of information. One is not negative and the other positive. It is good to know that God is wrathful against sin. Is that not great, right? And that's why throughout Scripture, God's people celebrate His wrath. They're not embarrassed by it. They don't shy away from it. They celebrate it. Two long passages. This one is called uh, the Song of Moses. It's not the whole song. It's long. But the context of this is this is right after uh, God parts the Red Sea and the uh, Israelites cross the waters. And then Pharaoh tries to cross the water, and what happens? They get a big taste of God's wrath, right? They, they drink a big cup of God's wrath. God drowns them. So now the, the Israelites are on the other side of the shore, and they look in and they see, okay, God just delivered us, and they see all these dead bodies floating in the water. They see all these dead horses floating in the water. What do they do? Do they cry out, oh, God is so meany? He's such a meany. He's such a grumpy, cruel old man, right? Is that how? No. How do they respond? They sing a song of celebration, and in it, they say this, The Lord is my strength and my defense. 
He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. They are praising God for his anger. They are praising God for his wrath because he defended the innocent, because he poured out justice against sin. God's wrath is something to be excited about, not something to be embarrassed about. Another example of this from Psalm 76. But you, you are to be feared, speaking to God. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. God's anger brings men into submission. It brings men into fear. And it's our hope on Judgment Day. Who can stand against God? Wouldn't Judgment Day be a little intimidating if all of the sinners stood up against God and said, you know what? No, you're wrong. I'm not going to hell. You're going to hell. Get out of here. And they scared God away. That would be a little anticlimactic, right? But he was saying that ain't going to happen on Judgment Day. Ain't no one standing up against the wrath of anger of God. This is, again, they are, this is, these, these are psalms and songs of celebration. Our God is wrathful. Oh, that is good news. That is good news, not bad news. And so in conclusion, I want us to see specifically how the book of Revelation ends. Well, this isn't the very last chapter, but so much of the end of Revelation, the good news, the triumph of the end of history is the demonstration of the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus' wrath is basically how the Bible ends. <laughs> And this comes from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's a graphic. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, this isn't necessarily, it, maybe it is, it's not necessarily going to be a literal description of the end times. But nonetheless, Revelation 19 is putting the end of the story into a picture of Jesus conquering the nation through warfare and judgment and wrath. So even if you want to say, well, that's just metaphor, that's just symbolic, it still gets to the heart of the author who is celebrating a God who treads the winepress of the fury of wrath. A God who makes war. A God who conquers sin and conquers his enemies. So again, the Bible concludes on a note of God is angry and wrathful and he will pour out his wrath against sin. 
And all God's people should say to that, amen.